You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hello, everybody, and welcome. It's Noah Rosenfarb from Freedom Business Advisors, the author of Exit, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. Thanks for joining us today. We've got Patrick Ross with us. Patrick is an affiliate partner at Lindsay Goldberg, in addition to being a CEO for the last 30 years, running a bunch of different companies, uh, having a tremendous amount of experience both growing businesses, turning them around, and exiting them. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for calling me. Yeah. So maybe, you know, it would be helpful if, if you could look back on all the transaction experience that you've had, what would you say are some of the most important lessons you've learned along the way? Uh, one important lesson I learned about 20 years ago was it's, it's kind of like a marriage. It's really easy to get engaged and get married, and then you start thinking about how do I – how do I get divorced or separated? And that's a lot more complicated uh, circumstance. It takes a lot longer than it does to just go down to Vegas and get married over the weekend. I, I think if we spend as much time planning our exit when we acquire a business before we make the acquisition, we're probably better prepared. So that, that would be one of the lessons. Uh, the other one is give me a – go ahead. I was going to say what, give me some more because I'm sure there's more than that. Uh, sure. Uh, I would rather a bad business with good people than a good business with bad people. Uh, it sounds kind of pat, but boys, oh boys, I've seen some uh, really bad deals come from, uh, you can fix a bad business, you just can't fix bad people. So doing your due diligence is really, really important. I would say that um, if you want to be successful, you got to What's the old pat line? A, a, a partnership is a pretty hard ship to sail in. So you got to really pick your partners wisely. And and uh, I, I've noticed lots of people say, hey, Pat, I'm thinking of uh, buying this company in Toronto, such and such, such and such, uh, um, does this and this and this. What do you think? And I'll go, oh, my good Lord, uh, don't do that. That's Those guys are, or this is, or that market is. And then I get this look on their face of dismay. Well, actually, I've already purchased them. I was just hoping you'd tell me it was a great idea, and I'd tell you I actually did it. <laughs> I've had more than uh, a dozen people ask me for advice about potential acquisitions, looking for me to acknowledge that they're a great idea, only to find out that they'd already done it. I don't know why they're asking me for my advice. So, And it comes back to they didn't do enough due diligence, and in each and every one of those instances, the troubles that uh, that I warned them about, indeed, unfortunately happen for them. So do some good, do some good background stuff. As with respect to selling your business, I think 
I, I have a philosophy that um, if you really know your business, nine times out of ten, you know who should be buying your business um, or who should become your partner. And you can hire investment bankers and they can legitimize it and they can give you the uh, like hockey players. Uh, they learned pretty quickly that if they hired an agent to negotiate for themselves, they did a lot better than if they negotiated for themselves. I think CEOs probably should hire agents. <laughs> and I think businesses have to hire agents because they, the, the, the agents help you take the personality and emotion out of the transaction and you tend to get maximum value and the best value and the best partnership. But Again, nine times out of ten, my experience has been I know exactly who should be buy, who will ultimately buy my business uh, before I even hire the investment banker, and and hopefully I've done all the work in the three years prior to that to to make it uh, the the perfect choice for that particular uh, purchaser. At least identify the and I, normally you can identify the, the 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 top two players at the end of the day. That's been my experience. Yeah, I'm gonna let you do some more talking, Noah. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Well, you you mentioned um, three things in that. One is, you know, prepare for the end in the beginning. Uh, do great due diligence on your team and your partners. And, you know, hi, hire a banker when the time comes. So I, I'd like to kind of delve into each of those three things and, and maybe start sure. with, you know, what, what are the things owners should be doing now while they're operating the business to prepare for that eventual exit? Uh, start building a data room. I have the discipline to have your data room current. So oftentimes, you're not, uh, you're not in control of the sales process. There, there's the one instance where you've got a business that's completely unsellable because you are, you are the heart and the soul and the, and the, and the person, uh, the, the, the front man for that business. That's a, as much as it's an asset for you, it's a real liability for any uh, potential buyer because you eventually, you can't replicate yourself and you can't, uh, if you die or get hit by a car, the goodwill and the, the real value of that business disappears. So, so try to get yourself in a circumstance where uh, you created systems and structures such that you could scale your business up because at the end of the day, anybody acquiring you is going to want to do the same thing. So get a business that, that's not a trap for you, and that's why I say you've got to figure out how to get out of the business before you get into it. Uh, so it, it, can I get out of this business, or is it just is it just a really a, a full time job that offers me a lifestyle? And then once you have the business, uh, start putting work together immediately, and, and because it carries that discipline of having a business that is sellable at any given moment. Because sometimes you'll get a call out of the blue that somebody actually wants to acquire you. Well, if you've got if you've been running your business with a good structure in a in a good replacement program for yourself, and understand scalability, and have kept to put together a good clean data room. Uh, you're, you're you're ready to probably transact very quickly and maximize your value. So I could talk on for hours and hours, Noah. Well, but, but but a best practice on the data room, and you know, I I find a lot of clients they get they get scared when I use a word like data room because it, it sounds pretty serious. But uh, you know, then I show them it's really just a, you could use Dropbox if that's what works for the company of your size, or you could use something that has permissions like Net Documents, or you know, there's, it's it's software where you could keep your documents so they're at the ready in the event somebody else wants to see them, and there's a way that you could you know deliver it to them. Do you have kind of best practices that you use? within your portfolio companies or would it vary by size? Yeah, it varies by size. I, I, I think it's not, it's not how you do it. It's the fact that you do it, right? That, that, I think that's the more important point. I, how many businesses do you know out there that don't have a succession plan, don't have a data room, don't even know how to put together a data room, 
uh, don't understand the, uh, how private equity works. I mean, the, the shows like yours in Website Divestopia are, are really have come a long ways to educate guys, which wasn't really available 10 years ago. But I, I think it's important just to get your head wrapped around. Like if I got a small business, I probably should think about having an advisory board if it's a privately owned business. That just, it's, it's that discipline of going, I can't be all things to all people, and I have to be ready as ready as I can be. And putting together a data room as a matter of course is much less expensive than putting together a data room when you get a phone call from an investment banker, and you've got to have something together in two weeks. Yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, Notice I'm saying data room and you're saying data room? <laughs> well, I'm in South Florida and you're uh, up, up north and in the cold. You betcha. Right? Yeah. Uh, so you also mentioned due diligence on the team, and I think that's one of the areas that a lot of owners really face challenges. That you know the, the the mantra is you should be slow to hire, fast to fire, and unfortunately, it's the reverse for most owners. So, what type of diligence should they be doing on the partners they're going to enter into business with, on the the you know the teams that they're going to be working with? What what suggestions might you have? Well. Well, they say reference checks is a good starting point. People are, gonna, are not going to give you references that are bad references, but you can ask for them. Give, give, me some, give me some references of people that have not been happy with the transaction and give me some references of people that are happy with the transaction. And if, if an empl- a potential employee or a potential acquisitor is flouting the fact that they're honest, they'll give you both, both of them. And there's always a reason why deals fell through, and it's not necessarily that the guy's a bad guy. It just... Bad things went through. The only question you ask on a reference check, I think, it's not, there's not 25 or 30 or 40 questions. There's one, would you ever do business with this person again? Would you ever have this person work for you again? It's a pretty straightforward thing, but you've got to pick up the phone and do it. And then you've got to poke around, and you can do that now because of the Internet and find people that are obtusely related to the, the people you're working with. Call, ask to speak to every CEO of every company that the private equity firm has purchased. And you pick out which ones you want to talk to. Um, I, I do believe, again, it goes back to if you've got yourself, if you really are in your business and know the strategic importance of your business, you should know who would be the most likely an opportunistic uh, and higher time paid. Uh, and, and, and most, it's not always self how much money they pay you for your business. It's if you're, if you're going to sell a whole thing, I think it is, but if you're going to sell a portion of your business and partner up, um, the, it's the type of people you're partnering with that's more important than how much money they're going to pay you for the business because the second bite's more important than the first. I think you, you like hiring good executives. Headhunting firms can go through a whole bunch of testing processes, but if you've got a good crew of people working for you and you've got a good network in your community and you belong to a couple of good associations, my experience, again, is that the success rate of hiring People that know people you know and trust is much higher than hiring people that somebody has recommended to you because he's passed a bunch of Braxton Hicks tests or fits the check marks, check boxes. So get out there and find out what's going on and get to meet people. And then how about the, the investment banker? You know, I, I hadn't heard that analogy before, but it's a good one that, you know, these hockey players, basketball players, they're all using agents, so why not the owner? Um, when, 
when people are looking at investment banking firms to represent their company, and, and if they're uh, as savvy as you might suggest and they know who their buyer might be or the kind of group of buyers, how should they be interviewing those investment bankers? What should they be looking for? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that question by giving you an anecdotal story. We, we used uh, an investment bank on four consecutive deals, and investment banks have a we call it a, 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 a wall between uh, research and sales. And so hopefully you've got a public business, you've got analysts who are are examining and discussing your business's potential, and then the investment bank gets an opportunity to uh, do a primary offering or a secondary offering to help raise equity to help grow your business. That's a publicly traded company. Those guys tend to also expect that they've, if they've had that close relationship with you from the analyst side to the capital raising side, that they'll be uh, the guys you're going to call when you want to sell your business. I, I've been in a, in, in a position where I felt compelled by virtue of the uh, amount of relationship we'd had with our investment banker to hire them to sell our business. And I, back to my point, I had a really strong feeling of who this business was going to be sold to. And it was you know, a few hundred million dollars, relatively significant size. And the investment bank I've been working with came in and, and was quite cavalier about you know how great we are. We don't need to tell you how great we are. And we think that, that group is not going to buy the business. We talked to our associates down in the States. They know those guys better than you do. And I think it's a waste of your time. And here's what we think you should do. Flew in the face of how I, how I felt about the business. And then I had a completely raw group of people, another investment bank, come out of the blue, tell me a story about how there was a, they felt there was a consolidation going on in this industry and they knew this guy and they knew that guy and, and, uh, and they flew up and they showed, they showed enthusiasm and they, they were able to, they said, look, we'll, we're so confident that we can do this and this and this that we'll uh, actually won't get paid until we're successful. Now, if we, when we think we got a valuation, if we exceed that valuation, we want a percentage of that. Well, I went from dealing with somebody I dealt with for 10 years. I had to say, you know what? I'm, I think you guys are taking this for granted. I've got some people that really, really care. Uh, and, and I'm really glad I made that decision. They did a spectacular job. I've used them again. It's, it comes back to every deal is new and unique, and you've got to find an investment banker that knows you, knows your industry, knows your business, and is truly enthusiastic about helping you because they know that this transaction is going to be a slam dunk. And, and That's a lot of words. I'm sorry. Well, in terms of finding that right fit, um, you know, would you say it's it's like any hiring decision? There's it's part gut, part you know, presentation, fit, cost, and and all the rest of the kind of standard checklist that people have when they're hiring a vendor, or bringing on a new relationship, or is there a uniqueness to the investment banking hire because they're, you know. They're one and done. There's not a long-term relationship there, at least as it relates to the owner that's selling. Well, I, I think it's, I think it's like anything. Um, I, I'm sitting on a public company right now, and we have a division we want to sell, and we had a proposal by a very reputable investment banking firm to help us with the disposal of it. And I listened to my fellow board members say, "Well, goodness gracious, I know somebody will do that for half that. I know somebody will do that for a third. I know somebody." 
well, heck, my daughter would do it for one-tenth their fee, but I'm not quite sure my daughter is <laughs> completely aligned with the particular industry we happen to be involved with. It, it comes back to looking at the deals these guys, have, these guys or gals have done, uh, their reputation, their integrity, their, their, their ability to deliver, and the investment banks, I think, uh, all have some value proposition that resonates with certain types of owners and certain types of industries. The trick is to do your due diligence and put some time and effort into it. And like choosing a spouse, you, you don't always get it right. But if you put a lot of effort and time into it, chances are I, I happen to get it right. I've been married for 34 years. Thank goodness. Um, you, you can do it even with your young, when you're young and dumb. You can pick the right spouse and you can pick the right partner. But it takes effort and lots of good communication and, and – um, uh, lots of due diligence. Sometimes you get lucky, but if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, and cheap is not good most of the time. Uh, and then, you know, you and I were talking before the show about, you know, the, the variety of businesses that you've been involved with, some at the, you know, earlier stage and smaller size, and then clearly a lot at the later stage and larger, larger size. How, how does that impact you know, who's going to help you on the way out? And, and how do you try and find quality at every level? Well, I think quality finds you oftentimes if you've got a good reputation and you've done a good job. Uh, and again, it's a matter of picking good partners and going to the right uh, parties and uh, and being involved and current and well-read and, and reading the paper and understanding who's who in the zoo. It's... Don't fall for the first guy that walks through your door. I mean, it, 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 it really does come back to it requires some work on the owner's part, hard work, and, and, re, and reliance on a good advisory group. I, 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 an example I can give you, uh, I moved to a small town 600 miles away from my, the home I was born in to run a business, and I bought a house, uh, a 100-year-old house. I have a wife and four daughters. And I talked to the real estate agent, and I said, do you know any contractors? And he says, yeah, my brother's a contractor. He's kind of a handyman. And so I hire this handyman, and he, uh, he hires his drywall friend and his carpet friend and his linoleum friend and his carpet friend and his bricklayer friend. And I've been in this town for three months getting my house ready for my wife and my four daughters. I show up one day from my hotel. I hadn't looked at it, and it was an unbelievable mess. And I said, what's going on here? And I guess I thought you were uh, – I thought you were buying this house to flip. I said, no, I'm buying this house to live in. Oh, I would have done a much better job. So now I do some research, and I find out I have hired the town drunk, unfortunately, who has been in and out of jail 15 times. I would have not known any of that stuff. I took one recommendation, and I hired all of his really, really bad, incompetent friends. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm seven months pregnant on this house deal. And I've had to, and everybody that that now got to meet in the local community who were legitimate citizens said, "Oh my goodness, you should have done that." Well, we do that in business sometimes. We we make a mistake of hiring one person, and next thing you know, we're into a really really bad circumstance because we've surrounded ourselves with a whole bunch of that person's other bad people. So I go back to my original premise: you're if you you really 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 worth your while to do an awful lot of due diligence from hiring your accountant to hiring your lawyer to hiring your investment banker to hiring your headhunting firm or anybody else. 
TV at MTOR. Interesting experiences uh, I had when I when I first moved to South Florida and was talking with a potential client. You know, he said I I run a background check on anyone that um, is going to be involved in managing my money. I said, Oh, okay, that's that's interesting. Why do you do that? I said, Because I live in South Florida, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> it, it, it kind of escaped me that uh, you know this is the land of of the originations of frauds, and um, you know when you're in the business of handling people's money. They want to know who you are and what you're doing. So uh, it was an interesting experience for me coming from the Northeast where, you know, people know your family or you've been around and you have a reputation and uh, Florida certainly more transient. So interesting. Absolutely. But, um, yep. So well, one of the questions I had for you that I thought, you know, you'd be real expert at answering and giving some insights to is that a lot of businesses now are obviously selling to private equity firms and they're doing that, you know, in, in, most part because they're a big part of the buyer pool, and in, in, uh, to a certain extent, they want that second bite, and they do want to continue to stay involved in the business for a certain number of years and have an opportunity to continue to grow it. But, you know, oftentimes there are strategic acquirers that are in the process of looking at them as well, and the owner's not sure, you know, should I sell to 80% to a private equity firm and wait around and work here another three to five years and stay involved, or, or should I just sell out to the strategic acquirer and, and, you know, kind of take all my chips off the table and run? Uh, and so to the owners that need help figuring out a solution to that puzzle, what advice can you give to them? Well, I think it comes Back to motivation. I, I think you answered the question you just asked me. If if, uh, if you're tired, exhausted, want to want to just you know I've I've, I've done it. I'm I've, I've done everything I wanted to do with this business. I just want to take my chips and go to a beach in Mexico. Uh, then you no, private equity person group wants to wants to buy your business, but they also want to buy management. They, they, very seldom do a private equity group have a team of managers to dump in and take over from you. Your relationships are really important. So you're, so you're selling to a strategic. If you go, gee whiz, i got to get rid of dad. If I borrow a bunch of money from the, from the company, if I get the company to borrow a bunch of money to pay off dad and mom, um, that stops me from growing this business for the next seven years. And by that time, I'm almost dad and mom's age, and I'm thinking about retiring. So wouldn't it be nice to have a, a private equity partner come in that's got access to cheaper capital and and I've been so busy running my business in my region, I haven't had time to get out and see what the rest of the world looks like and these people have. Um, and I think I can get a better – I still want to be here. I just don't want to be encumbered by a ton of debt and, and smell my own fumes. Then you, then, you go to a, 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 um, then you go to a private equity supplier. Is that, is that a obtuse answer for you? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's the same way I feel about the problem. It's kind of – for most owners, although they feel like ah, I could go one way or the other, I think in their heart of hearts, there's a way they really want to go. Um, either yeah. they're, they're ready to leave their business or they want to stay in their business because they think there's more upside and they have the, the vision to achieve something else. But but it seems that there are some owners, especially you know the, the multiple from the strategic may be a little bit better than the multiple from the private equity firm. And you know it, there's enough money there for them to have financial security. So there's some appeal to you know kind of packing it in. Uh, and then there's appeal on the flip side of sticking around with the business with seasoned partners that know what they're doing that do this for a living. Um, but but in that, even still, when well, owners are faced with, you know, they, they know they're going to do a private equity deal or they know they're going to do a strategic deal. Um, what I find is on the private equity side, 
again, it's who, how do you know who you're getting into bed with? And you know, price isn't the only decision criteria in selecting a partner. Is there anything unique about that process of, of you know choosing from competing private equity firm offers that you think you could uh, help owners you know create a process or some questions that they might want to implement if they're if they've got a few offers from private equity firms that are close and they've got a pick? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean. <laughs> One really important question is, I mean, beyond doing the now, I've, I've said do your due diligence, do your due diligence, do your due diligence. I, I won't beat that horse any longer. But there, there are a whole myriad of uh, private equity types. Uh, I've, I've seen some that, that uh, have five-year funds, seven-year funds. I've seen a couple that have 10-year funds, and I've seen very few. The one I'm involved with in New York, Lindsay Goldberg, is a 20-year fund. That's a very patient, they, will, they, will, uh, they don't need to exit seven years from now, uh, they, can, they can wait a long, long time. They're there to grow the business. If you're working with a PE firm that's uh, not, I, coming back again, full circle, sorry, one question you can ask is how much of your own money do you have invested in your PE firm? And if it's, we, well, I don't have any, or I've got $100,000, but we're going to raise 60 and you're going to pay me 4% to raise that money and blah, blah, blah. You've got, you've got probably something that's a little bit less, than, a little bit less bought into the transaction than, than you might want them to be. So knowing that you've got a, a PE firm that's, that's got a lot of the partner's own money in there, they're, they're in alignment with you. Knowing that you're with a PE firm that's, what's your history of stripping equity out of this business? What's your, what's your history of, uh, what's been your return to investors? Has it, has it been done through financial engineering? Like, are we going to leverage this up seven times and you're just going to use my balance sheet to make yourself rich? Or are we gonna, do, you have a, do you have some code of ethics or code of conduct or code of approach that says, we're going to take a really conservative role here and here's kind of the range of leverage we're willing to use and here's the times where we will start to pay back uh, LPs uh, with a bit of an equity pull. Are we going to do it through debt? Or are we going to do it through performance? Understanding how the LP gets paid back and when they get paid back and how that might encumber your business are really important questions. And oftentimes most business owners unfortunately don't, not bad, but they don't have the sophistication uh, to to know what or when to ask those questions. So that's where it comes back full circle where an investment advisor is uh, uh, probably an agent is probably a good person to hire to make sure you cover up all those details. Yeah, and it kind of dovetails into what we were talking about before we got on here is around capital structure and kind of the inefficiencies that exist in most privately held businesses in their capital structure and and kind of the probably most common thing that uh, outside investors do is is rejigger the capital structure to make it more efficient. Uh, well, you know, just maybe share some experiences where you went into a business and you were able to, you know, take a look at their capital structure and, and re-engineer it and what were the benefits and what were maybe some of the detriments or, or the downsides that you've seen over time? Well, I, I got involved with the business um, that we we bought it. It had $5 million capital in the bank. It had a fleet of $10 million. It was run by a former banker. And they were proud of the fact that they had no debt, that they had money in the bank. And they were, I think, number 24 in the marketplace. Uh, we, uh, we looked at them and said, look, there's no way you're going to be able to capture some of these big industrial projects with a $10 million rental fleet. You, you need at least $50 million. So went to the sales guys and said, go out there. Sales people, go out there and find us a couple of big projects. 
um, and they say, we want to be on the bid list of these projects, and they're saying, we need 50 to $100 million for, the, for these things. There's no way. We have a history. Of the answer is, don't worry about the money. You guys worry about the business. Worry about getting sales. I'll worry about getting you the money. I have a signed PO from a large international uh, exploration firm for a $200 million project. Um, I'm pretty sure that I can find $10 million of equity, and I'm pretty sure I can convince the bank to lend me $30 million on that $10 million of equity, and I'm getting much closer to the $40 million will get me at least started in the project. It's, 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 um, it, it, in the mindset of most private business owners, they're proud of not – it's like paying your mortgage off in Canada. We're all proud to have paid our mortgage off. Uh, but I can – <laughs> uh, in, in your business, you can also pay all your debt off, and you never are beyond to the bank. But but there are capital structures that still doesn't put the bank uh, in control of your business, whilst being able to have capital available to really grow and expand your business and reward the shareholders. So I. Go ahead. How have you seen interest rates, um, you know, fluctuate over time and impact? The, the decisions you've made as a CEO or, or you know, a board advisor in the various portfolio companies, and, you know, maybe just share a story about you know when interest rates were rising or interest rates were declining, and uh, you know, good good economy, bad economy, you know, any impact that you felt based on um, either you know leveraging a business or deleveraging a business. Oh gosh, I mean, when I got into business in 1980 and got married and looked for a house, interest rates were 20%. <laughs> Inflation was a little bit rampant too, by the way. But, I mean, interest wiped out an off 19, 18, 19, 20% crazy numbers, and, and they wiped off an awful lot of people. And I think people of my generation are still somewhat affected by those crazy interest rates from back then. You can always – the problem with low interest rates is you pile on a whole bunch of debt, because debt's always cheaper than equity. That's kind of one of the cardinal rules. And then interest rates take a turn. And, and goodness gracious, uh, a couple points can be the difference between being in business and not being in business anymore. I see lots of private equity businesses come in, pay too much money for a company, finance it legitimately, realize that they're in the glue as the market starts to downturn and they start eating up working capital. And so they start going to sub-debt and they're paying in an interest rate market where they should be paying 5 or 6%, they're paying 12, 14, 16, 17%. And at the end of the day, they prolong their death by two or three years, but ultimately they most often die. So again, it goes back to your question about what's an efficient capital structure. It's, it, it, it depends on what part of the cycle you're in and how much equity you have and how much risk you're willing to take and, and how uh, good of a reputation you have with, with lenders and institutions and investors. If you've got a great business and great management, you can probably often you can find debt or equity any time. I think. One of the conversations I had recently with an owner, they're they're, they're getting about a six percent return on the equity in their company, and you know I suggested to them that they could borrow money from the bank at about three and a half percent, and then invest it in a diversified portfolio of other other businesses that they don't control, and likely you know there'd be some leverage and also some diversification. And the concept. Is, is like abhorrent, like you mentioned. You know, people want to have no debt on their business, and so to them, just knowing that they're getting their six percent on on the value of the company, that's good enough for them. Uh, you know, what do you have to say to owners that have that kind of 
I don't know what the mindset is, but the, the risk averse, you know, I, I'd rather be debt free and and uh, than than rich. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I was talking to somebody this morning about something along those lines where I. I I have a twin brother. I don't, but I, let's say I have a twin brother, and we both inherit $100,000. I go out and buy a condominium for $100,000, and a year from now, I sell it for $110,000. I've made 10% of my money. My brother went out and bought 10 condos for $10,000 down, rented them out, got $90,000 mortgage in each one of them, and he sold them all the next year for $110,000 each, and he made $100,000, less a little bit of interest. Uh, so he made 100% of his money. Works great in the rising market. Um, what happens if the thing went down ten thousand dollars instead of up ten thousand dollars, like Florida and Arizona? And if I bought one, it's not going to kill me. I'm going to lose ten thousand bucks. So if I bought ten, <laughs> my hundred thousand dollars is gone, uh, and I'm in big trouble. So who's smart and who isn't smart? I, I think it's like is it black or is it white? Cap, proper capital structure is it's somewhere in between. There is a gray there somewhere, and uh, probably two or three or four, wherever your comfort is. But it's it's having the sophistication to mitigate your exposure and have a diversified portfolio and blah 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 blah. But knowing that my my grandpa bought land for a hundred for a hundred dollars and I sold it for seventy five thousand forty years later, I'm going to own real estate all the time, and now it costs me four million dollars to to buy a building to run my business in it might make sense for me to maybe sell that building and lease it back and use that capital to grow my business and not have to take on more debt or not have to take on more equity and dilute, my, and dilute myself in my business. I think, again, I, I don't think I can answer that question globally. I think it, it takes hiring the right advisors, spending a bit of money up front, and, and lifting. And so how about the companies that you interact with at Lindsay Goldberg? Yeah. Do you think that, uh, you know, Typically, I'd assume they've been in business quite a while. They've got, uh, you know, a well-developed team around them. Do they have most of this stuff figured out in terms of capital structure and due diligence on their team and having the right advisory board and the, the right investment banker? Or do you find that, uh, you know, the, the problems are just on a different scale? Oh, I, I think, no, I, 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 I think, um, uh, I think that... You can take a look at the track record. I'm sorry, we're on a line right now. If you hear a beep, beep, but just somebody trying to get a hold of me on this line for some reason, so that will go away eventually. I, I would say, Lindsay Goldberg, you, you can you can talk to them. You can take a look at their deck. Uh, they'll, they'll they'll share their performance across all their portfolio businesses. There'll be a couple dogs, but but with these guys, there is a general theme of uh, they got it figured out. Uh, they empower management. They they do the term they use is granular due diligence. Once they've decided to get into something, they spend a lot of time and a lot of money up front making sure they've got as much information as they possibly can. And and part of it is picking good management teams and figuring out ways to help those management teams become even better. Uh, they're, but they're a very conservative group. The, uh, the leverage ratio across all their portfolio companies is uh, debt to equity is 2.4 on average which I think, I haven't done the research lately, but I think it's more like four and a half right now. Would you have, what do you think it is? 
Noah? Yeah, probably in there. Now, depending on the size of the company, but yeah, for, probably four to five is, is the right range. Yeah, yeah. So uh, ultra conservative. Well, and 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 as you described, it's patient capital because they've got a twenty-year time horizon. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a little bit different, but uh, and then mother private business forward capital. We we tended to uh, we would buy public companies. We had liquidity in our stock and. And so our capital structures were somewhat different, obviously, because we had access to not just our own equity, but but the public markets equity. And so it's a, it's a different style again. But every circumstance is different. I think it boils down to, boys, oh, boys, you better. The one thing I've, here, I had a little brain pop here. The one thing that all private equity people that I've been exposed to admire are operators, are good operators that actually have a modicum of understanding of, uh, of finance and, and financial structure. And, and that the one thing missing in most private equity firms are people that actually have ever operated a business. And that's where the friction oftentimes comes in, is operators learning how to respect the financial guys and financial guys learning how to respect the operators. And there's that equilibrium that has to play. And, and if the operator tries to become the financier or the financier tries to become the operator, uh, you quickly find, in my experience, disaster. <laughs> it doesn't work very well. So seeing private equity people trying to joystick uh, a company because they've, they've hired or kept not great management, is a, it's, my experience, has been a recipe for disaster. Mine as well. Uh, so what else would you like to share with our audience before we say goodbye for today? Uh, I, I, I'm not going to beat up the, the due diligence thing. I will do a, a, a selfish uh, promotion for Lindsay Goldberg and just explain that the, the, the model that we work with at Lindsay Goldberg, we are just closing under $5 billion, so we've got $15 billion of uh, capital, $5 billion available right now, about a $2 billion in our last fund. We're looking to invest 100 to $500 million in privately owned companies and become partners from 45% to 75% and, and help grow and scale up and create really great enterprises. So my job is to find those private owners that are looking for not the, not the best price, of the, like not an auction sale, but a really patient, uh, well-connected, well-directed partner. So if anybody does know that kind of stuff, give me a call. I can tell you some great Canadian jokes and find you a great American partner. So what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? As I mentioned, we've got a lot of advisors that listen to the show. Um, they may have clients that fit this criteria. And I would assume typically there's a, there's a, a reason they're making the phone call. Uh, what, what would be like the top three reasons that families reach out to Lindsay Goldberg? I think because the money comes from families, most of the investors in Lindsay Goldberg are actually, are actually family trusts predominantly. There are institutional stuff, but, but there's this culture of, um, of patient capital, appreciation of uh, family dynamics, and, and a respect. We, we, we've never done a hostile takeover. We never will. And uh, we very, very seldom have had, had to throw anybody down the stairs. So it's, it's because we put an awful lot of time and energy into making sure we we're finding the right dance partner. And they've got a great reputation. Like I'm just giggly about being associated with them because it's, um, they just, they've got a spectacular reputation on the street throughout, throughout the world, frankly. So to get a hold of me, uh, I'm, I'm involved with lots of businesses and the IT people put up firewalls that 
kind of restrict half the information. So I'll give you my Mac email address. It's pfross, uh, Papa Foxtrot, Romeo, Oscar, Sierra, Sierra, at me.com, Mother Echo. Or my, and you can phone me. I've got a 403-528-1095. So nothing secret about that phone number. And I'm also, if you search Patrick Ross on LinkedIn, you'll find a bit of a CV on me. Uh, if you put the initial in uh, F, it'll make it even easier. Patrick F. Ross. So, uh, hey, Patrick, thanks go. so much I for take, taking the time. I really appreciate you joining us and sharing some of your great wisdom. Uh, for those of you that are listening, please share your feedback on iTunes. Uh, post your comments up on Divestipedia or free to uh, email me, noah at freedomadv.com. And look forward to having you as our audience again on another show. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.